Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, it's 2022 and yep, it's still special. Our Sunday special mailbag edition of this podcast with myself, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool, and him, Andrew Page, the founder of strawman.com. G'day, mate. How are you? From the founder or the founder? What did I say? I thought you, I, might have, I might have misheard. How are you, mate? I'm very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever, whatever I said wrong, unless I said flounder or something else, you were definitely <laughs> the founder. Flounder is probably more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> you're, the blo- you're the bloke behind the straw, behind the man or something. <laughs> I like man it. Man behind the straw. Something, it's, I'll work on it. There's something there. How are you, buddy? Very good. Very good. Good, good, good. Should we do a mailbag? Let's do it. Lots of questions, you know, over the break, which is awesome. Oh, mate, so good. Uh, And look, the the good thing about having the stuff in the can was people didn't miss out. The bad thing was we've got six weeks of (laughs) mailbag questions to get through, which is not a bad thing. It just means that we want to make sure we can kind of keep up with everything that people have sent through. We will do our best. We'll even try and keep it a bit shorter than usual, mate, in terms of the per question answers. We won't be able to because you So so no 20-minute rants on each question? Ah, Keep it to nine and a half, mate. I reckon that's a success. Challenge accepted. Let's go from a question from Brent, which is a lovely way to start it off. G'day, lads. I found your podcast about four weeks ago and can't stop listening. I really love tuning in. As they say, Brent, don't tell us, tell your friends. <laughs> uh, but thank you, mate. We really appreciate it. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm an absolute novice in shares, he says, and I found your back and forth has really helped me glean new perspectives on the market as well as helped me build my financial lexicon. I'm lucky to have had a lot of success with my share portfolio, but the thanks for that must go to my broker and other friends of mine in the industry. Fair enough. I really love getting, I keep being active and up to date with the share market, and I'm fascinated by the finance sector as a whole. Perhaps it's become something of a hobby of mine. My question is, put as simply as I can, how would you recommend a novice investor such as myself, who is willing to learn and put in the work, make the most of their time to get the best results from the stock market? There appear to be so many sources of information out there, but I just don't know where to start. I'm happy to invest time on the subject, but don't want to keep. I don't want to be spinning my wheels focusing on irrelevant information. Does that make sense? Sure does. Many thanks in advance for filling this question. Keep up the great work, and that's from Brent. Love it, Brent. Glad you found the film. Glad you found the podcast. Glad you found Strawman. Glad you're investing. But mate, how should Brent make the best of his time if he's going to devote some to becoming a better investor? I really get the conundrum here because it, it yeah. is a bit like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, like there's, yeah, is. there is, you know, you put a simple Google query in and you're going to be hit with just an ocean of, of stuff out there. Fortunately, most of it's rubbish and you, and you can ignore it. Mm. Um, I, would, um, I would very strongly encourage you just to read a bunch of books. I, 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 we've said mm. it before and we'll say it again. We've actually done some past episodes on recommended reading and that kind of stuff. But the investment that you can make in a book that could be anywhere from, you know, 15 to 30 bucks is, is just uh, – the, the return on that is, is insane. And what you'll find in investing is that the, the big lessons are all timeless – and they don't they don't really change, um, and so I, I would I would uh, maybe you can remember Scott, but I would I would dig up one of the, that episode on our recommended reading list. I think yep. we did one over the holidays. I think that's a great place to start. Yes. Um, I believe the Motley Fool. If you sort of uh, Google uh, recommended reading, you guys have got a, a few articles out there, which is just yep. some yes. of the timeless classics. It's, there's yep. a lot of them come up again and again and again and again. Um, I think I think. What you want to do is you want to learn as much as you can about business first mm. and markets second. Markets, mm. <laughs> the share market's really the last thing you need to think about because mm. it, it sounds so corny and hackneyed, but you, you're buying part ownership in a business. Yep. And if you don't understand the business or what it's doing or the competitive environment or the 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 drivers of earnings and that kind of stuff. It doesn't really matter and nothing nothing else really matters. So you you have – that has to be your, your primary focus. It's only at the point that you think, actually, this is a really great business with a really great future that you should even think about whether the share price is, is something that you, you need to look at. Because for most businesses, I don't care what the, the price is because I, I don't want to own it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's so, a great point. So you, you, I, I think for me that is the focus. I would yep. I would steer clear personally of anything that is is really hyper focused on. 
yeah, what the share price ha- has done, you know, what what the most recent quarterly results are without any context of how that fits into the broader picture and, and trajectory of things. You, you need you need to have a, a, a very clear understanding of what you're actually buying. And, and you are buying something. People like to say with shares, oh, it's all intangible. That's why I love property. It's tangible. I can touch it. Well, you, you're, you are actually buying real things that exist and then in many cases you can touch. <laughs> I'm very fond of saying I can go and touch Woolies whenever I want, you know. I can, <laughs> CSL has a building with lots of people in it, you know, et cetera. Right, Cochlea right, has exactly. all these devices. Out. They're real. They're very, very real things. It's just that yeah. unfortunately these days we abstract them away a lot <laughs> and we all sort of focus on- That's actually on- the best point, right? If you, if you owned- if you own shares in the local newsagent, you wouldn't say it's not real. Yeah, of course it's if, real. If you're, if, you're, if you're a half owner in the newsagent, you would have half a real business. You wouldn't. You would say, oh, I, I don't like the newsagent. It's not a real business. Not, not I can't touch it. It's not tangible. Yeah. No, it really, really is. Yep, yep. And yeah. but the hard part, the hard part is that the value of, of that newsagent to go with your analogy is isn't yeah. the the lease right. agreement or the property if you own it outright the and, the and, and yeah. the stock of yeah. the inventory and that. No, it's yeah. it's 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 a, it's actually the, the the caliber of the people running it and the mm-hmm. uh, the earnings capacity that that entity has. Um, yeah, that's what you have to understand. The second part of that is is we often sort of distinguish between the business and then the value, and mm-hmm. and that's that that's that's equally ch- tough. It's all hard, by the way, Brent. Um, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's 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 it, but is the value? Um, I would say just on that point though, although it is, I, I really I'm always a big red flag for me is whenever anyone out there is sort of talking about how easy this is because that's it's it's not. But at the same time, it's not inaccessible. You, you don't have mm. to have a 200 IQ to, to mm. get your head around this mm. kind of stuff. Mm. It is it is accessible to almost everyone. Yeah. Um, and as we often say, that the, the bigger challenge is usually a temperamental one, an emotional one. Totally. Um, but but that yeah, look, that's a long answer. But read read a lot of the classics. Focus on the business. Focus mm-hmm. on value, and and those those lessons will 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 put you in very good stead. And the final point I'd make, Brent, is that it's a it's a never ending journey. Mm. Um, you and I, Scott, have been doing it for <laughs> too, longer than I <laughs> that I, I care to nominate. <laughs> but I, I learn something all that every year. Yeah. I fo- yeah. feel as though I become yeah. a bit of a better investor. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think when I'm eighty, I'll still be learning new things. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, be be curious, be curious, and read. Love that, mate. Good summary. Um, yes, I, you and I both investing more than half of our lives, put it that way. Um, mm-hmm. It's a decent journey. Brent, uh, a couple of things. First thing, I, Ram's spot on. Um, so I'll add to that. Firstly, make haste slowly. Um, mm. When you're excited about something, I don't want to waste that enthusiasm. Like you want to get on with it, but also don't feel like you have to solve all of the investing problems in the first six months. Like it's a hobby, you love it, which is awesome, and you should, and you keep doing. By all means, don't. I don't want to scourge you in the slightest, but just make haste slowly, right? So you've got a lifetime ahead of you, as Ram and I have just talked about. If you're a young bloke, you sound like you are. Um, give yourself, like, you know, you you you, you, you wouldn't try. You wouldn't try. You're not going to try and win the grand final the first year you play footy, right? You're going to learn your skills. You're going to get better. You're going to get bigger. You're going to bulk up. You're going to get, you know, whatever. All the stuff that goes with that. Eventually, you get to the point where you're good enough, experienced enough, mature enough to win the grand final. Now, it's probably a crappy analogy, but work with me. Um, you're going to win the marathon on the first kilometre, right? You've got to remember this is don't don't burn yourself out. Don't do too many silly things too early. Um, and not, not so you go and do silly things, but just, just you know, the, the urge to do something because it's fun and exciting. And what else should I buy? What else should I buy? What else can I do? You, you may just run the risk of, of over... Um, Overexerting yourself, so just just make haste slowly. Yeah, um, it, it's a good point. There's, there's always a, a for whatever reason, there always seems to be a sense of urgency with investing. Yeah. I've, got, I've got to do this now. I have to act now. It's a very I I, I struggle with that daily. It's very yeah. very hard. But but yeah, you there's never a rush, and for whatever yeah, yeah. opportunities you miss, there'll be ten more around the corner, and you'll and miss you'll half get them, them all anyway. Well. Even, yeah, even if even if you could eventually the ones you thought you saw, there'd be more you didn't see, and it's just yeah, you, you got to. You got to bring yourself back from that. Your point about focusing on the business first, then worrying about the share price is brilliant, Andrew. I love that. Um, Brent, three books. Don't invest a dollar till you've read these three books. Four books. I've just added one because uh, I'm reading it right now. I love it, and I'm going to talk about it another time. But but okay. So here's the thing, Brent. Over the next six months or four weeks, depending how quickly you want to read them, read these four books. Not in any particular order, but but see how you go. Uh, first is read uh, the essays of Warren Buffett. Um, Buffett is not the the coolest tech investor around, but do that you will you will learn an absolute truckload, and it will change the way you think about investing. I promise you, in a good way. So do that. Read one up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. Uh, great accessible book for individual retail investors. So read yep. those two. 
Then Ram said temperaments as or I actually think more important than, than ability these days in investing. So read for me two books. The uh, Little Book of Behavioural Investing. I've talked about that before by James Montier. It is probably hands down my favourite investing book. It's a really little and book too. It's you, 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 little book. you read it really quickly. Just, yeah. You're underlining every page. You're going, oh my God, of course. Yes, okay, I get it. Um, read that. It, w- it will save you from so many potential psychological traps. You will email me and thank me in two years' time, I promise you. Um, and the th- last one I'm reading currently and I'm loving the hell out of is The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Um, I don't know if you've read that yet, Ram. I, I knew it was going to be great. I've, I've recommended it without reading it because I, I, I was going to say I've recommended it without reading because I've followed yeah. him for so long and I read all these. And I finally, so I'm listening to an audio book. I'm not actually reading. I'm listening to an audio book. Um, it is it is as good as you and I would imagine, Ram, because we've know Morgan House's writing. He's an ex full writer. He does a whole lot of other stuff these days. Um, just brilliant and really well written. So read those four books for me, mate. For you, anything else? And then think about how you want to put your money to work. In the meantime, if you want to do something with your money, um, go and put some money into ETFs. Start that dollar cost averaging process. Just start saving something every pay before you spend anything else and putting it into the market or at least into an investment savings account. We're not going to touch it and use it for anything else. Ideally, start investing it every, you know, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever whatever it gets big enough to invest. But yep. um, start that habit while you do your reading. I, I strongly endorse all of that. Um, and the final point I'll make before we go on, and we, we did promise not to talk for 20 minutes on <laughs> every question. We, but- we, we said we were going to try. We didn't, no one ever really expected it, but we will and, try. And another thing. And another um, thing. The, I would, I would uh, try and get your focus more on process rather than outcome. Nice. So what I'm talking about there is obviously outcome matters, right? We're, we're all doing this to... To, to if, uh, better our lives yeah. uh, financially. Um, but the, the, the really weird thing about the market is you can do a lot of things right and get very <laughs> bad outcomes in the near term. <laughs> yeah. uh, it happens, right? And, and sometimes you can do really dumb things mm-hmm. and get really, really, really well rewarded for it. Yeah. So outcome obviously is, is the ultimate measure over time. Mm. But, you know, you, you will, as we've just said recently in, on Friday's podcast, you know, you, you will have periods where um, – you do, you do absolutely the smart thing and it just leads to a really bad result and, yeah. and, and in, in the short term, in the short term. And, and that's mm. the really hard uh, part. So when I think it's always good to reflect on your past decisions and look at whether they were bad decisions that mm. were obviously bad in hindsight, in, in, in the sense that you should have known that they were bad at the time, or if you just did something really smart and it just led to a bad outcome. The, the easy analogy here is to say I had a loaded coin that, that, that you know, comes up heads 80% of the time. Yep, now, yep. You, you might flip tails five times in a row, but you'll keep flipping, right? I mean, you know that you've got something that, that the odds are on your side. So that that that's just a, a real conundrum when it comes to investing. You, you have to distinguish, as I say, process from outcome. Mm, exactly. Um, let's move on, mate. Great, but great, Brent. Good luck with it, mate. Uh, stick with it and let us know how you go. Hey, this is, a, this is a long one, mate. And it comes from a listener who's also a Motley Fool member who's asked to remain anonymous. He also in the email says, hey, I don't want you to use it on the podcast. And in the end, he says, if you want to use it on the podcast, feel free. Uh, just leave me anonymous. So I'm going to read it. And it's important for a whole lot of reasons about financial planning. And uh, you may have some thoughts at the end. We might just let it go. We'll see how we go. Mm-hmm. Dear Scott and Andrew, first, some disclosures. I'm a current but soon to be retired financial planner. I'm a member of Motley Fool Platinum. I don't want my email to be published on the Sunday mailbag, but he says I can, so it's fine. But I do want to respond to some of your comments from a previous mailbag about using a financial advisor. Uh-oh. In, no, it, it, well, he, he takes us to task, but it, it's, it's a positive one. In my experience, I feel that many, most in question mark and in brackets, advise are nice people doing what they think is a good job for their clients. But to Andrew's point, I think most of their advice is mediocre, but I suspect we think it for different reasons. Andrew's comment, I don't use one given what I do for a job, illustrates precisely, in my view, what a poor job our industry has done and continues to do in articulating the role of the financial advisor. Our role, in my view, is about accountability. In other words, getting people to do what they need to do to achieve the things in life that are most important to them is what I believe a good advisor can and should do. I love that. It isn't knowing how the superannuation rules, tax rules, estate laws, etc., work. That's just the ticket to the game. But because of our industry's failure to understand where they can add value to a person's life, it's no surprise that many people think the main role of an advisor is to take people's funds and invest them. Any bozo can do that. And what's more, I tell my clients they don't need me to take their money and invest. They can Google how to do this. But accountability is something else. And to pick up on Andrew's metaphor about the personal trainer, some people are capable of getting up in the morning and going for a run. 
These people who are disciplined in a financial context probably don't need an advisor to get them to save regularly, strive for the big goals, etc. Yet in my experience, most people, brackets to use the fitness metaphor again, close bracket, issue the personal trainer because it's more expensive and instead just join a gym. They go to the gym for a few months, then their attendance wanes. Same goes for investors. There are people who could best use a financial advisor to help them focus on the end game and without the guidance and encouragement of their advisor, they fall short of achieving their goals. And frankly, accountability is something the Motley Fool can't do despite Scott's messages about us having us eat our financial vegetables. There's no accountability on members, so the best you can do is beg, cajole, plead and hope, he's right, that I and other fools follow what you're recommending we do. But the one thing the Motley Fool can't and doesn't do is hold me and other members accountable to do what needs to be done to achieve my goals. And I'm not talking about crossing the line of giving advice, which of course you don't do. I'm talking about getting us to behave in a way you know will work out for well in the long term, i.e. to follow the recommended purchases as advised through many services. But that's why clients pay me an ongoing annual fee, not to achieve the highest return for them, but to be held accountable to do what it takes to give them the highest probability of achieving the big goals in their lives. Nothing more, nothing less. I could rant and rant about the problems with our industry to anyone who'd listen, but I don't wish to bore you, so I'll just make a few more points. And it's coming to an end, so it's worth reading in full. Scott's reference about the experience his mother had with an advisor sadly sounds all too common. I'm guessing it was a nice guy or girl who met her once a year and told her money was doing okay, moved a few investments around and bade farewell until next year. But did they add value to Scott's mum's life? Probably not. I can absolutely <laughs> confirm that he doesn't. He didn't. Now, I don't know what it was they were promising for Scott's mum. What I do know, though, again, from Andrew's comment, if he was doing something that was making her ridiculous returns, is that the belief in the community, even by people in the industry, is that advice is supposedly measured by investment return outcome. In my view, that's an erroneous viewpoint. We should be measured by outcomes for the client as measured by, quotes, making them eat their financial vegetables, close quote, so they achieve everything in life they want. And he goes on uh, after that, finishes off. Finally, I do wholeheartedly agree with Andrew's comment that financial advice is not complicated. It isn't. And for those advisors who are stuck in the dark ages and think their value add for clients is giving the clients the impression that advice is complicated, then sooner rather than later, they'll be replaced by an app and so they should. Keep up the good work teaching the consumer how to be a better investor. Your feedback, positive or not, is most welcome. And that's, well, I can't tell you who it's from. He has to be around anonymous. But I did just a really, really um, great context, different perspective. And a good reminder, I thought it was worth reading out just almost in full because uh, it's great content there. I, I, I love it. I was a bit nervous when you started off there that I know we're going to be taking <laughs> the task here, which, which perhaps we should in a lot of things. But but I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with, with with all of that kind of stuff. Yep. It's like any industry. I'm, I'm a big believer in the 80-20 rule, the yeah. Pareto principle or whatever it's Pareto, technically. Yep, 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 Pareto principle. It, it's, mm-hmm. I think that's true of any industry, whether you're a surgeon, a doctor, or an engineer, a nurse, <laughs> or whatever. You just, yeah. I think all, and, and particularly in your and my industry, mate, it's mm-hmm. like sell-side mm-hmm. analysts and all of that kind of stuff. There's mm-hmm. just a lot of not really great value add kind of stuff mm. there but the mm. people who are, are really good at it they they create mm. immense immense amount of value and i think that's very true of financial planners there are just some incredible people out there and the writer um who we don't know the name of um i i i, I think is is hit the point there you, you want a financial advisor that is going to act like your personal trainer <laughs> on oh. that 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 is that is going to do and is is going to have your their their uh, interests and incentives aligned that are going to be focusing on keeping you on the right path i, just, I wholeheartedly endorse, endorse everything there i think it's some excellent excellent comments i actually i actually think um i completely agree too and I am left wondering, and this is just a kind of German of an idea, so it's probably a terrible one, but I'm actually wondering, so we have personal financial advice, which is what financial advisors give to individual people with their circumstances. We have general advice, which is what the Motley Fool does, which is basically, hey, here's the stock. We think this about Woolworths or we think, you know, BHP is a buy, hold or a sell. There, there are, almost should be a different... See, the problem, with, the problem with personal financial advice is it's stupidly expensive to provide. Mm. So the, the, the advisor's point is absolutely bang on. But the amount you've got to pay to make it worthwhile for the advisor to take you on as a client mm. and the yearly fee is is extraordinary. And it makes it unaffordable for most people. Either well, they pay it and, and pay too much as a percentage of their assets or they're paying, uh, or they're rich already. And I wonder if there's some, it's almost like a financial, we're almost some sort of financial coach designation, which sounds wanky and I don't mean it to be, but exactly to that advisor's point. You almost need to be able to say, you know what? 
yeah, there's the financial advice bit of structure and tax laws and superannuation, all that kind of stuff. But the rest of it should be able to say how to be provided more inexpensively, surely. There's got to be mm. some way to do that. I don't, maybe there's not, but it just it strikes me that the people who need that help are, are the 26-year-old with $20,000 in the bank who's not going to be able to pay $3,000 a year for a financial advisor. Mm. You know, it's that kind of – they're the people who need that skill set and that training and that coaching and support. I don't know how, I don't know how we do it as an industry, but, I, but we need to solve that somehow. Yeah, great. Let's move on, mate, to a question from David. <laughs> Hi, Scott and Ram, a.k.a. Scram. <laughs> um, <a> quick question. <laughs> it's, it's a thing. Uh, <laughs> so like, it's like a, uh, was it uh, Tomcat and uh, what was it? Was the one to the J-Lo? And, oh, anyway, 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 uh, let's move on. A quick question for the magnificent podcasts you gift us all with each week. I would like to know more about a curious rare event, the return of shareholder capital. My West Farmers shares and one or two others have just paid back capital. It would seem this requires ATO permission at a corporate level and is tax-free. How great is that? Not a dividend and not a capital gain just yet. No tax to pay just yet. Why and how do companies do this and how does it all work? Why don't more companies do it? What are the limits? Best regards, David. Oh, great question. Isn't that? So, yeah, I'll have a crack. Um, So the reason, well, depending on the tax treatment, that's a second point I'll come back to, but but companies are entrusted with shareholder money and their mm-hmm. job is to get the maximum return that they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and very few companies <laughs> will say, actually, we don't really have any good use for it right now. Here, you can have it back. Um, it, should ha- it should probably happen a lot more often than it does. And it's absolutely the right thing to do unless there's a very compelling opportunity to invest that somewhere that will generate more more cash uh, down the track. So that's why they do it. They do it because they've usually because they've divested a, mm. a business or something is a big lump sum of cash. There's no immediate use or ability to reinvest that in the operation or to acquire another business. So they just hand it back. And, yeah. and that's absolutely what they what they should do. Um, again, in that in that situation, that they shouldn't do that. <laughs> Let me be clear: if they've if they've got this business that is just humming as a really strong value proposition, really strong competitive advantage, and if you could invest that at very high rates of return, please keep it and make me far more wealthier um, than what what I'm going to be able to do. Um, the the uh, the way that they do that from a tax perspective, they I think it's right for the board to consider the the tax implications for for shareholders. And by doing it as a capital return, it's not that you don't pay any tax on it. The, the, the listener is correct. It's just that mm-hmm. you don't pay any on it now. It basically gets issued to you at a nominated cost base, as I understand it. Um, and then that is reconciled. Oh, I'm trying to, trying to think now. Help me out here, mate. Get me, get me through the technical no, part no. of this. So, yeah, often so there's this, there used to be two ways the company could could return capital shareholders that either pay a dividend or they'd buy back shares on the market. So they reduce right. the number of shares on issue. And just quickly to interrupt, there, the, 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 the decision there would depend on the, the price of the shares. It's probably should, pretty should silly. depend on the price. If they they, they yes. shouldn't buy it back if their shares are really high. <laughs> Correct. And also if they've got a big bank of franking credits, that's a really tax effective way. In fact, you often see companies return cash at a lower than nominal share price value because when yes. you factor in the value of the, the franking credits, it's actually yes. it's actually more. So yep. So well, that's and that's actually the so that's the rationale largely for most returns of shareholder capital. Is if you've got a massive amount of if you've got more franking credits to return than you have dividend or cash to pay the dividends on. So companies what they, they end up with so you can only pay out franking credits normally on dividends at the tax rate, right? So if you pay hundred dollars in dividends, you can distribute thirty dollars of franking credits with it because that's the way that that's the way the tax works, right? You've paid tax on that. But if you've got eighty dollars worth of dividends and only hundred bucks worth of sorry, eighty bucks worth of franking credits and only hundred bucks in cash, you, you're left over with excess franking credits. What a return of shareholder capital does, if you get the ATO's permission, that's what has to go through the ATO, David, is the ATO can approve a return of capital which is mostly a franked dividend or carries those franking credits with it. So what it effectively does oh. is, is it, it allows them to distribute excess franking credits in a way that is super tax effective for the recipient of that um, return of capital, like super, super, super amount because uh, you, you pay a whole lot, of, you, get, you get a whole lot of money. A small amount it normally is as a dividend, which is taxable, but the return of shareholder capital is saying, well, you gave us some money a while ago, here's that money back. 
So it's not really a loan, but it's kind of treated a little bit that way by the ATO. Neither of us are tax accounts. We're not going to get into the specific details for individuals. But what it basically does is it makes it stupidly, stupidly efficient for the company to give that money back because most of the value you get is not in the cash, it's in the tax benefit that comes with it. And so it's, for example, Woolies did this years ago. They actually had a return of capital that was actually at a lower per share price than the shares that were that the shares were trading for. And the answer was, why would you do that? The answer was, there was so much tax, there were so many tax credits attached to it. It was actually worth more in tax terms than in cash terms, which sounds weird, but that's the way it worked out. So largely that's why. It, it's almost always when they have excess franking credits to distribute, and they but they don't have the cash to attach to those credits. The way of liberating those franking credits that, um, that the ATO has to sign off. Uh, oh, bells are ringing in the back of my head. So I, I, I've got I've got shares in, in a company called Ava Risk Group, and they're right. they're currently look, waiting for a favourable ruling on the ATO to do exactly yes, yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And so what what they what they're looking to do is this. And so what it does is it it. it it gives you um, uh, the the cash back, but at a uh, at a nominated cost base. Correct. Correct. So your capital Which is gain. Tiny. Yes, yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so you're, the, you're with a capital loss because the shares are worth more than yeah. Exactly. Now the, you do have to pay the piper eventually, yes. but it's effectively a way of deferring the tax. Yes. Yeah. Good company, exactly. by the way. I hope, I hope they get a favourable ruling. There you go. They almost always do, but I, I don't. I don't claim to understand the, the, the bits in the background. Let's move on as we go. This is one from Anthony. I love this from Anthony. He says, "Hi, Scott and Andrew. Thanks for the great podcast. I've been listening since about episode three, but as a completionist, I had to go back and catch up from the beginning." Oh wow! <laughs> I, I, I apologize, Anthony, because uh, I said before they were some really, really ordinary episodes. That the very first episode, both Andrew and I read the script into the microphone. It was that ordinary. <laughs> We've, we've improved meaningfully since then. So um, I appreciate you went back and did it. You do. He says, I, I assume I've earned some bonus XP points. You have. They are they are very, very large XP points because frankly, on a per episode basis, if you got through those first couple, you uh, you thoroughly deserve those points. But uh, well done. <laughs> a lot of your commentary and messages, he says, get repeated as I was mentioning before. But as you said, it's good to have them reinforced to stay focused on what's important and knowable, he says. I definitely find it valuable. I've been a member of Share Advisors since I saw your Scott's shiny dome on Sky one morning <laughs> talking about something sensibly in 2005-ish. I forget the topic, but I remember thinking if this is what your approach is, then I should read more of what you've got to say. Thank you, mate. I'm also a paid-up member of Strawman, which has been great. I've cool. been following Andrew since he was a dividend investor, then at Strawman. I've got to thank you for putting me onto Pointera, Prometicus, and Catapult, which are all multi-baggers for me. Oh, excellent. Then he says, but it's not all roses. I also have to thank you both for RFG, Jet Education, and I <laughs> yep. sent you. Guilty. <laughs> guilty, guilty, guilty. But not Sorry. to worry, he says, the winners have definitely outpaced the losers and I've learnt the most from the companies that went sour. So there's definitely no blame being laid. Ooh, thank you. You've got to own your own decisions. And as a certain Mr. Page would say, all care, no responsibility, and no one cares more about your money than you do. Or something to that effect. <laughs> a big lesson to me in the value of a diversified portfolio. Okay, he's got a couple of questions. One, I know a company can buy back its own shares... And then I assume the shares get removed from the register and so the remaining shares are all worth proportionally more. Yep. So what happens if or when a company buys back every single share? Who then owns the company? Can a company own itself? Is it at which point it sounds worryingly like a Skynet singularity type thing? <laughs> uh, it can't be done. A company can wind itself up uh, and pay out all of its assets to its shareholders, but it must have at least one share left owned by one person. At, it, it, it never happens, of course. In reality, if you have uh, fewer than a certain number of shares or you trade a little bit less than the ASX requires, they can delist your company. So you become an unlisted public company. But yeah, good question, Anthony, but it, it doesn't it doesn't happen. It just it mathematically can't. It, the company would be wound up at that point and the assets distributed to the one remaining shareholder if there was one share left or if you want to get rid of the last five or something, there were some people left, that's how it would be done. Yeah. I mean, companies do go, well, not very often, but they do go private occasionally. Yes. And they just, they, what they do is they just buy uh, a, a bunch off of anyone who wants to sell and then it just goes off market. But there are shares, there is always some shares left and those shareholders own the business. The company doesn't exist if there are no shares because that's what a company is. So, yeah, it's, it's a good question, but it would, it, yeah, not also a singularity, it would turn into a black hole. It just would, like, you know, anything divided by zero is zero. It's kind of the same, the same if, thing. If you, really wanna, if you really want a mind melting um, <laughs> oh, uh, thought process, oh, I'll get 
this is probably not for this episode, but at some point, Scott, I'm going to have to get, because you've explained it to me on multiple occasions, but <laughs> you're going to have to explain to me cross-shareholdings again where oh, Sol, yeah, Solpats own shares yes. in Brickworks and Brickworks own shares in Solpats. Solpats. So what are they worth? Yeah, so, <laughs> so I own shares in a company that owns shares in me, which owns shares in them. You know, that Jones shares in me, right? Like I, 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 you you explain it to me, and I go, oh, yeah. And then, like, a month later, I've forgotten. It, it just melts my brain every time. <laughs> All right. Uh, second question You've talked about shorting a lot and how it's a dangerous game to play since your upside is limited to 100%. Yes. But your downside is unbounded. Correct. So, as I understand it, the shorter borrows the shares from someone who owns them, sells the shares, and then intends to buy them back later at a cheaper price and give them back to the person who owns them. You've nailed it. Perfect. Yep. But what happens if the company delists or goes bankrupt and the shorter can't buy back the shares anymore? Presumably, they still have to return them to the owner at some point and they're still paying a premium in the meantime. He says, this question was inspired by a scene in The Big Short where they're talking about having to close their position because the market may not exist for much longer. Thanks in advance. Have a good break, Anthony. He's asked some great questions. That's a great question. I think, I think, well, if, if I've got to think this through, but I think if that's the case, there's nothing to give back. You just, you just, you borrowed some shares, yep. you, you sold them, you got the money for it, and then there was nothing to give back. So you just keep, keep the lot, right? My, that's my understanding. Is essentially, if it goes to zero, then there are no shares to return and the values are at zero anyway. So you could give back the metaphorical share, but you're giving back something that's in administration. Mm. So mm. It, would cease to, it would cease to exist because the person who owns the shares, um, their, their shares are worthless anyway. I don't actually, I, I will admit, I don't know what the technical requirement would be in those circumstances. Mm. So it'd be, it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, I don't know what the literal transaction would need to be. I am relatively sure the intent or the, the, the impact is zero dollars anyway. So it's almost, a, 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 again, a bit of a theoretical one. Um, you know, I, I've got shares in bankrupt company X, Andrew, would you like them back? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's one of those, again, it's a reasonably. Uh, I might get a, something a, when it's liquidated. Yeah, question. maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But it's, it's a good question, mate. It's a very good question. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Question from Frank, Hank, I, Scott and Ram. Thank you for so thoroughly answering my question on one of your recent podcasts. I hope when you read this, you've both had a decent break. We have, thank you, mate. Thank and your you. families are coping with our latest COVID challenges. I would love to have been able to be in the debate or provide a more detailed summary of my strategy rather than just the broad brushstrokes required for a podcast question. But in response, well, I'll spare you my ramblings. In your response, you said to let you know if I'm using a margin loan in the two to three percent range. Given I, this was Frank was at the um, margin loan, was talking about whether we should uh, be investing using margin. Given I only subtracted two to three percent from my prospective twenty percent return, I am in fact paying a fairly competitive two five point five percent. But my calculations are based on all my interest being tax deductible, so on the highest marginal rate, essentially halving the effective cost. I understand part of the returns will be taxable dividends, and yeah, that is the problem. But there'll also be some input tax credits, so I think a two to three percent deduction is appropriate. Uh, I will stop here. If, I, if you're paying five percent, at best half that's two point seven five. So going to two is probably you're already kind of taking a bit more than you should be off that one. But yeah, I, I take your broad point, and I guess you could argue that three percent would be appropriate on that basis. Your answer were very thorough and useful to me, so I'm hopeful they'll be useful to other listeners. Scott, I agree. A few points, ten to fourteen percent, make the risk less palatable. But if I'm honest, I curated the question a little and I, even 17% doesn't sound like a big advantage, but it compounded, it adds up. Fair. I'm actually in the test and measure phase, so I'm borrowing at 60-40, which make the returns more like 25%. I know you can't give personal advice, but even when I say I'll well, back up the truck, I only tend to do it with about 25% of my available capital, currently much less, with plenty of resources to deal with the dips. And that's the conversation I think that you and I had and the points we made. Having said all that, your general discussions have me thinking of a couple of changes I will make to my strategy, particularly around know thyself, he says. The most important thing for me, you spoke of a few podcasts earlier, is my strategy is not about Porsches, but an adaptation of the quote you mentioned, blessed is he who plants trees, whose shade he will never sit in, but will be enjoyed by his family for generations. I like that. Thanks again for all the good work. I look forward to seeing another question soon. Learning much more and hopefully a few of the recent suffering extreme opportunities Rex turn north. I hope so too. Um, uh, I, obviously, I want to read Frank's question because we, we did spend a bit of time talking about the, the value of a margin strategy. We spent a mm. lot of time on this one because it's a topical one to to get through. Um, I wanted to – so it's largely a reply and a response to that one. So if you haven't listened to the original episode, go back and have a listen to that. It was a useful conversation. What I, what I 
just wanted to mention again, I don't want to beat the same drum necessarily, but um, again, as I mentioned, I'm reading the psychology of money. And Morgan Housel talks about a couple of occasions where shares went down meaningfully for really, really long periods of time. And the last 30, 40 years in the market have been really good. Um, if you're around during the NASDAQ crash, the NASDAQ fell 80% and and didn't recover properly for years. So there's probably some slight um, analogy there, but most people think about the S&P or the ASX and then think it through that way. I just wanted to reinforce the point. Having actually was, I thought about Frank's um, original question, plus his response when I was listening to this only yesterday. Um, and just that, that that example of, you know, falling 90%, staying low for years. Uh, yeah. Is it likely? No. Is it possible? Yes. Uh, so my general, my general view is, you know, is uh, there's not a lot of consolation in, I took risk I didn't need to take, uh, I went broke and man, how unlucky was I? It's all true. Uh, versus, you know, I made a little bit less money than I might have, but I lived, as you said earlier, to fight another day. And that's that's kind of just my, my general thought. So again, I, I am banging the same drum, uh, but it just, just reminded me that the, the, the search for the nth dollar, uh, when the, if you, if you to plot the return and the risk on, on, on a graph, on the same graph, um, you know, the return on the first dollar you, you make, pretty good, the risk pretty low. Uh, at some point, those lines cross over. And I, I personally, just as a general rule, I, I would stay to the point where the return is, is greater than the risk. Um, even if the return goes up a lot, the risk at some point in that graph, I think, goes up even further. And you've just got to make your own decision about how far those lines should be apart to sleep at night. And as you say, Frank, the know yourself thing is um, is most important. Any other thoughts on that, mate? No, no. Uh, you know, I think that's the, the, well the, the points are know thyself yep. and just go in eyes wide open that, you know. Exactly. Good one. You're, you're, we're, um, we're all adults, yeah. you know. Do do yeah, do, totally. do what you feel is is appropriate for you, but just just don't 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 do it in ignorance. And it doesn't sound like Frank is at all. So that that's that's the key thing. Yeah, I um yes, I, please, please, everyone should read the psychology of money. Do do yourself a download it now. Um, Ram, you do it too. I'll talk about it next week. Um, it, Morgan just puts it in such beautiful terms, and it's it's just a really useful thing to to go through. And exactly that point of everyone's different. You know, I'm not going to judge anyone for the decisions they make, um, but equally just recognise that the, the, the movements and the, the trends that are at play. Yep. Hey, um, one from Scott, not me, someone else. Good day, Scott. I've been following you for the past 12 months. Haven't been in a position to do much about making a commitment in the past, but I'm about to change that in a fairly solid way over the next 12 months or so. I'm 58, so the decisions moving forward need to be astute ones, as I'm sure you'd agree. In saying that, I understand the market uh, with a mother that still trades daily at 85. There you go. I get that it's not all smooth sailing and will diversify my portfolio to hedge against those risks associated with market ups and downs. I have five ETFs that I want to build up to about half a million dollars in the next 12 months. I have our super sorted so we can look to expand into the share market more so from here. I have about 25 to 50 grand to play with. And this is my question to you. Here we go. Now, I will say at this point, Scott, you know that we can't give you personal advice, so we will respond more broadly, but uh, just, I understand the point. First, you recommend five shares you would always buy as part of your portfolio. Sol Pats, Dominoes, and so on. Would you still buy those today in building a portfolio? Two, if I was looking at your last 12 monthly recommendations, what wouldn't I include this time around? Three, you and Andrew often talk about the all-in belief with what you recommend to your listeners. How does one do that if you recommend 50 plus a year? Most buyers of stocks will have a limited budget. Cheers, mate. Uh, thanks, Scott, from... What's yes? Anyway, Scott uh, works at, a, at an agency. Yeah. Thank you, Scott, for your, your question. Let's go in order, mate. Um, he's talking about share advisor in particular here. Um, so I want to kind of make it relevant to our, our podcast listeners. We have um, on share advisor a feature called Starter Stocks. And we suggest that members start with those five companies. And so his, his question is, you know, you recommend those five you would always buy as part of your portfolio. Would you still buy those today in building a portfolio? I think, Andrew, I'd be curious to this. Uh, this is a portfolio of construction question. Mm. We recommend those five companies to our members for two reasons. One is we think they are reasonably easy to understand businesses. They reasonably typify the way we run ShareAdvisor. And they're reasonably bedrocky type companies that we have a high degree of confidence in. So we just talked about risk and return before. Mm-hmm. We think these five companies are, as a, as a group, individually, they can always go anywhere and that's we're always clear to say that. But it's, it's, it's the idea of like a foundation level of a portfolio. Um, you know, if you're going to build a portfolio, these five bedrock companies are ones that we think make just really good sense to have in a, in a portfolio to let you build that foundation and then grow from there. 
I'm going to imagine you're actually a different investor. I'm going to imagine you don't necessarily have foundation positions in your portfolio given your style. Is that right? No. Oh, no, absolutely I do. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they probably wouldn't be uh, traditionally classified as blue chip or okay. you know, lower risk. Yep. But yep. they are absolutely the companies I have pretty high conviction on and feel as though I understand really well and, and mm-hmm. feel as though they, they represent decent value with good good long, long-term prospects. Yeah, uh, okay. in, the style may change, but the principle mm-hmm. is is identical. Okay. Um, so the answer, just again, Scott. I'm sorry to make this about share advice, but yes, yes, they are. If we if we if we didn't make them, we only build starter stocks from our buy list, and if they were no longer worthy of being starter stocks, or we didn't think they were going to be market beating, we would remove them. So the answer is always yes. With all of our portfolio, all of our services, the multi full. The very second we don't want you to buy something, we'll tell you. Uh, if it remains a buy on the scorecard, then yes, we would still buy it today. Um, I won't do the last 12 recommendations, Scott, if you don't mind, because that's very share advisory and, frankly, um, not very interesting for, for non-members. Um, but I will ask uh, the question about portfolio construction. I mean, he's asking the really good question, which is simply, you know, we, we've talked about lots of stocks. We've Share advisory gives lots of recommendations. Strawman's got lots of ideas from lots of lots of your members, Andrew. Mm. Um, think, about, think about portfolio construction in terms of how do you decide with all the great ideas out there, which ones of those to buy? Oh, such a good question, isn't it? Um, I, I I have a, a list of companies that I like, okay. and then next to those each company, I have a price that I think is reasonable. It's okay. a guess, hopefully an educated guess, but I, I'm I'm not egotistical enough to know that it's, to think that it's you know a, a perfectly <laughs> accurate uh, fair yep. value calculation because yep, yep, yep. you can't. It's impossible, um, uh, and I try and not too often. Um, but I did it at the start of this year. I try to every every so often. I try and look at them and say, mm. <clears throat> which I want. What I want is the highest quality at the best value okay. of all of those kinds of stocks. So sometimes I'll have lower quality stocks in there. There'll be like I'll have a bigger weighting of a company of companies that I think are actually lower quality than than other ones. But I just think the value is better. Um, and sometimes you know, and vice versa. So it, it's mm. it's trying to to balance those two qualities against each other. And the ideal, the, mm. the biggest weightings are the ones that just have the best combination of quality and value. Mm. Ideally, they'd be all super, super high quality companies, <laughs> all at stonkingly great value. Yeah. Um, that, that's that's what I'm looking for. And the, the, the quality side of things doesn't actually change fast. It changes, well, Kind of doesn't change fast until it does, but generally speaking, you know, business day to day doesn't doesn't really change too much in terms of its overall quality, opportunities, and prospects. Mm. Um, but the price will change quite often because that's what the share markets do. So that that that's probably what I I look at more often, but only through that lens of is this something yeah. that is now worth holding more of, or sometimes, you know, it's geez, I love this company. But you have this really. This is the best problem in the world to have as as as, as someone who manages a portfolio is when <laughs> one of your positions grows to thirty percent of your portfolio. Mm. It's only done not because I've I've decided to put thirty percent into, into one stock, but it's just it's grown really 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 well relative to everything else, and it's just come to dominate it. Uh, and I, I sometimes think that it is worth selling a few, even if it remains good value, just just for that risk. Uh, angle that mm. that was, was spoken of before. Um, y- you have to have super high conviction to have to have such a s- substantial holding in one particular stock overall in your portfolio. That being said, as I've mentioned to you before, those decisions have often proved with the benefit of hindsight not to be good ones because all I've done is leave more a lot more money on <laughs> on the table. Part, right? Like yeah, don't, yeah, overthink, yeah. don't overthink. Don't yeah. overthink. The, the, yeah. the take home yeah. message is don't. Always have an eye to value, but don't overthink mm. value on very, very high quality stocks. If it's a really, you know, average stock and mm. it was just stupidly cheap, uh, and then it becomes fair, now that's a different story. But when you've got something that is just, you know, super, super, super strong, super high quality, mm. that's mm. a lesson I've had a few times, and I've, I've failed to fully embrace that that lesson. So I do, I do think you can you can twiddle too much on on that kind of stuff, but. Mm. Have I answered the question? I, I, I yeah, it, it's it's that intersection of things. You, I, yeah. I, you'll hear a lot of people sort of saying that you know you want between twenty and thirty stocks in a portfolio, and that's based by some yeah. really good research. Yeah. Um, I tend to think, for me, I, I prefer to be a far more concentrated investor. Mm. I forget the exact maths, but once you've got, if you have one stock, you've got a lot of risk. 
if you've yeah. got two stocks, the the, the overall <laughs> the risk of the portfolio yeah. drops yeah. by something like forty six percent mathematically, yeah. Yeah. and then three, it's like a real it's real exponential decay. Mm. By the time you've gotten to I think ten stocks, you've you've gotten to about eighty five percent of the maximum benefit that that diversification will give you, yeah. and. Um, and so the for only me, important the, point at this point, just quickly, yep. that's that's at random, right? Don't yes. buy don't buy ten banking stocks and say you do. Yes. Like it, yes. it, it, it actually does matter which ones you buy. Very so true. if your if your stock picking isn't at random, you need more than the maths would suggest. If you're going to throw ten darts, you'd be eighty five percent diversified. Yes. If you're going to pick ten finance stocks or ten retail stocks or ten tech stocks, then just remember. I'm sorry, you obviously, but to listeners, just, just remember that point. you need to you need to make sure you're yeah you you have the benefit of that diversification by buying across lots of industries. And less less diversification you have in the choice, the less you should think this applies to you. And the more companies you probably should hold, I suppose. Yeah, correlation is really important there. You yeah, you want things yeah. that aren't too highly correlated. There you go. Yep. Yep. Yep, that, but that, no, that, that, like that's it. how I think about it. Yeah, that, that, that. and it, look, you know, here's the thing: you, 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 there is there is no real, uh, perfectly objective, scientifically way of of going about this. There's there is inherent subjective subjectivity in in yep. in all of that kind of stuff. So my appraisal yep. of value could be way off. My appraisal of value could mm. could be mm. way off. Um, but but I I personally I I, I think mm. if you're someone who really digs. This kind of stuff, and 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 you really take the time to to thoroughly invest and uh, um, and understand a, a, a business. I think you you can afford to be more concentrated. Mm. And although it sort of sounds risky on traditional things, I think if I'd rather be someone who owns ten stocks that I I know intimately well than thirty stocks that I kind of know a little bit about. You know, yeah, right. there is danger, I think, in being an inch deep and a mile wide. But by the way, you can still do perfectly decently on that. that that's the ETF approach, mm-hmm. right? So, so just buy the market. Um, you'll still do. You'll still do really, really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, for me, for me, I like I like a bit more concentration. I'm not recommending that to like others, it. by the way. It's just me. I, I think the more you know, the more comfortable you get. The more concentration you probably could or should have. Maybe yeah. even could rather than should. Um, if you're starting out, don't be concentrated. <laughs> it's just the, the chance because yeah. you, you know, yeah. the, like any any anyone, um, the chance of being wrong is higher earlier. Uh, by the way, it still can be higher later if you get arrogant about it. But generally speaking, to to Ram's point, when you get done it for twenty years and you start to think about, okay, I'm kind of reasonably good at this. I, I you know, I can I've proven out that I have some ability, uh, seemingly at least, and I want to make sure I'm then picking just my best ideas, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think I think you make you make perfect sense, mate. I like it a lot. Um, in terms of the service, if you're going to follow a service, you can just simply follow it buy for buy if you want to at Share Advisor or any service. Um, as long as you trust the people that are doing it, you want to get their return. You get their return by doing what they do. Um, the other option is to just choose the ones you have highest degree of confidence. In to Andrew's point, if they if they pass your own assessment of value and and quality, then go for it. And some of those ours will, some won't, and maybe do it that way. Yeah. So the other All point right. there was the the yeah. unlimited capital component, which is really good as mm. well. Like you can't buy everyone if you don't have fresh capital coming in all the yeah. time. And even if you do, it might not be enough to sort of build any kind of reasonable position. That, that, so that is, that is that is I get that particularly for someone who's in retirement. You just can't buy every recommendation totally. that, that comes along. So totally. uh, in that instance, you, you kind of do have to make a personal judgment as to which ones you like. And it, it's like, uh, we've used the analogy before and I think we probably stole it off someone else, but it's, 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 like, <laughs> it's like fielding a, a rugby team, right? There's all these yeah. great players out there, you can only pick. I know, I don't know my rugby God, well enough. How many? How many? <laughs> oh, I'm showing my my ignorance. You, here. you were going to say 15 and four reserves, I think. I think that's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can only pick. You can only pick that many, right? So it's, it's a that, that's that's a thing. But the good thing about yeah. investing in shares <laughs> yeah. is that you can always. It's actually pretty easy to change your mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much harder to do with property or or more illiquid rugby kind of players. assets. But yeah. yeah, but you can you can you can change your mind. So and and I think you you really need to the human. Humility is such an important characteristic for good investors. So you kind of you kind of need to have that. It's this really odd alliance of conviction and and humility, where it's sort of like mm. I really really believe in this, but I'm also cognizant of my frailties and weaknesses, and that yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah. And to to recognize that the biggest real the really well, there's a lot of big mistakes, but one of the biggest mistakes you can make is just wanting to protect your ego so much that you ignore a lot of objective sort of evidence. And you see it. I've done I've been guilty of it in the past. No, 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 no. Oh, that's human, I, it's human nature, yeah. Yeah, I'm not I haven't made a loss until I sell. No, I'm just gonna average down. Now it's cheaper. And you can you can do that. And I've I've in the very early days I've heard examples of where I averaged down to zero. 
And I just kept on trying to convince myself that I was right. And I, I, I think you, everything we sort of said is true, but just, just, just don't, don't, don't proceed with hubris is probably the best way of putting yeah. it. I like it, Matt. I like it. Hey, um, a question from Delphin, which I really like. Um, so Delphin's uh, giving me a whole lot of detail up front, which we won't, we won't go a whole lot of detail, but says, currently 86% of our assets are tied up in cash in offset equity and property and a few small collectible items. That's quite cool. Around 14% is currently in shares, mostly through super. And I've started investing outside super over the past few months. My questions relate to the timing of investment and the use of debt to achieve portfolio aims. He says, you've answered some similar questions over the past couple of months, but I'd be interested in how you'd approach a rebalancing question and whether this would differ from the I want a million dollars question, which I certainly haven't. If I was looking to transition from my 86 to 14 split currently to a core slash satellite investment approach with 50% 50 to 70% in property and cash in offset, complemented by 30 to 50% in the market, over what time frame would you approach this rebalancing? I certainly don't think I have any special ability to time the market and I'm aware of the conflicting views on what is going to happen in 2022. Uh, it will go up 10% as per the longer average or we see another 20% crash. Mm. Therefore, I'd like to dollar cost average. Is there a formula for the best time frame to do this over? Mm. Invest 8.34% of the total investment capital a month for 12 months. Invest 4.17% over 24 months. 2.78% over the 36 months. Mm. You're obviously a very financially, uh, mathematically minded person, Delphine. I like it. Say we chose a formula for the investment. If a market crash does occur, I'd be happy to back up the truck and use this as a buying opportunity. Similar question, how would you dollar cross average into a crash by a proportion when the market drops 5, 10, 15, 20%, etc.? Mm. No one is in quotes, going to ring a bell at the bottom, as you've said. So I mentioned your approach on knowing when to pull the trigger or triggers. Uh, finally, if I want to get to that split, I'm going to have to burn through cash in offset and or withdraw on loans. I'm happy to do this and have a relatively iron stomach. But my question relates to the sleep at night question. Mm. What percentage of total asset equity is reasonable to draw upon or to reinvest in the setting of a loan, loan tied to a property as opposed to a margin loan? What percentage of capital do you think it's best to leave in a cash or offset? Such cool questions. Mm. I like them a lot. And it's mm. lots and lots of detail there. So let's um let, let's go through it, mate. If you're gonna go from 8614 to <laughs> to his point and get to closer to we'll call it 50-50 for fun. Um what time frame would you do it over? Do you care? Do you do you have a view? Would you base it on the economy? Would you dollar cost average it? How would you think about making that transition? Yeah, we 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 have sort of touched on this in slightly different context before. Mm. And look, mm. there is there is <laughs> hindsight will tell you exactly what you would have done. <laughs> exactly. You know, if, April, if hey, March 2020 is the, is the best time in the last 3 years, I think. Right, like if the market yeah. if if we're in for a period of a big, you know, contraction or, you know, heaven yeah. forbid yeah. crash or something, well then absolutely you should you should grab Gradually drip it in, and you'll you'll do much mm. better. Statistically, mm. you've made this point before. Statistically, the best is to just to just make the move right now. Um, market tends to go up two years out of every three. Um, you know, big crashes like that tend to be not too common. So your best bet is usually to, to make the move. But but yep. the, the the question here was framed in a uh, context of sleep at night. And so for yeah. that, for given and which is really really important consideration, yes. for, for that yes. for that um, given that angle, I would be tempted to to sort of leg it in over over a 12, 24 month period. <laughs> your, your point will be, and you'll be right. Statistically, you'll probably regret that. <laughs> Are you here for this? <laughs> You're going to regret that if if yeah, the market yeah. continues to go up, and you'll think. Yes, yes. Oh, I gave this exact, well, similar mm-hmm. advice to a uh, uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law that that you know they had a bit of cash and was just like, oh, look, just mm-hmm. take a little bit and you know uh, divide it by divide it by twelve and just put a bit in every month. And um, yeah, they've they've done fine. But in given the timing of that advice. I should have said just chuck it all in right now because the the market's up a lot since then. So mm-hmm. that's the, the, you don't know. You don't know. But I, I would I would be tempted on the sleep of night factor to 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 dribble it in. Yeah, I completely, I, I'm not going to disagree with you at all, mate. I, I make I make both points completely side by side, knowing they knowing they contrast and to some point contradict, but they are absolutely choices that anyone can make. And sleep at night, I think that matters, right? Because mm. if you can't sleep at night, you, you tend to do something silly. Yeah, that's that's why the that's why the as I said before, there, there is a there is a theoretical answer, which is the wrong answer for most people. Because if you can't sleep at night, you're going to do something in a week, a month, a, a year. To, to fix the the fact that you've got chronic insomnia and you're going to sell something you shouldn't sell, you're going to buy something you shouldn't buy, you're going to make some decisions on, on because you're frazzled and can't sleep and just want the pain to be over, 
that's that's no way to, to, to have a financial life. So you're, I, you're exactly right. One wrinkle on this is is that if this eighty six percent is in property, yeah, uh, I know there's offset on that and all, but let's just yep, just yep. say it is. It's all in, in, in property. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different because yeah. um, the, the, here's the reality: if the property market crashes, the share market's likely to crash. If the share market crashes, it's probably not going to be yeah. great for the property market. They are they are not uncorrelated. That's uh, true. Uh, as well, so that that's probably not because one causes the other, but an independent causes probably going to cause both at the same time. If there's a huge share market crash, it's going to not yep. to be wonders for for confidence. It's not going to do one. Yep. The, the economy, the, the market is not the economy, as as, yep. as the old saying goes. But there yep. is a very light. It is. It is. I don't. I can't think of a time or a sort of a reasonable stretch of time where property's gone incredibly well and share market's gone really badly, mm. or, or vice versa. You know. So it's mm. it in that mm. if it was cash is one thing, but if it's if it's all in property and then you're thinking about the rebalance. That yeah. probably shifts me more to just make the, make the move now. Yeah, yeah. Pa- Pascal, because you're worried about property specifically? Or no, 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 no. Jo- well, don't don't bait me because you know. No, where I was, I, no, I, was I was I was literally asking. Well, you, you know my thoughts. Happy on, to bait you otherwise. You know my thoughts on, on <laughs> my horrendously yeah, right. poor track record on property. But, but <laughs> even even if I put that aside, I just I just make yeah. the point that uh, you know, yeah. it, it's very it's very silly of. It, it, Egotistically, I would I would like to see a share a property crash because it would still yeah. validate biases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've got to be careful what I wish for because under that scenario, mm. the mm. ASX is not going to do well, right? So <laughs> correct, correct. that's I'm very 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 aware of that kind of um, thing. So yeah, it's so so to answer your question, no, I'm not I'm not trying to base that on any uh, near term okay, cool. forecast on property. It's just that they're they're yeah, going to be they're going to be they're going to be correlated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, I would probably go one to two years because it gives you – the other thing about it, by the way, is you've got to work out what to put it into. And so mm. unless you have that ready, it's yeah. just easier to put smaller amounts to work regularly. It makes each decision less consequential, mm. lets you respond to circumstances, lets you build a portfolio Good more point. slowly. Or if you want to build up front, you add to it regularly, but you get that benefit. So I, I'm a big fan of dollar, me, dollar cost averaging in general. Yeah. Um, uh, you ask about the what percentage of capital you think it's best to leave in cash or offset, mate. That's a really, really difficult one. It depends on the circumstance of your properties, and that's that's a whole probably way outside our bailiwick. Generally speaking, um, I would I would have enough in the offset. If it was me, I, it, the, the benefit of the offset for me is partly paying down the debt, but realistically, offset cash is only saving you um, the, uh, the the interest rate on the mortgage. Right, mm. so if you're if you're on a mortgage at three percent, any cash there, if it was paid off the mortgage instead, saving you at three percent, I think over time you're getting it more with shares. So I see no reason if you're going to invest and you're going to increase the debt or reduce the cash anyway, increase the net debt. Um, I see no reason to hurry. And the only thing I would think about is really whether you want to use some of that cash for something else or have it available. But more importantly for me, I've always thought offset for my mortgage was about just a number of months of repayments if the worst was to happen, right? It's, it's almost, it's almost mm. you know, it, it gives you that. In fact, when I borrow money for the house we're living in now, um, I actually borrow more than we had to and I put the I put a large chunk. It was We borrowed much more than we had to to buy the house, but we put the entire amount we, excess we borrowed in an offset specifically for that purpose, that no matter what happened, either I could take it out to invest shares if I wanted to, but it was far, far more about, you know what? If I'm if I'm out of work for whatever reason for a couple of years, then hey, I've got I've got I literally had months and months and months and months of repayments in the offset. Mm. Now, was it necessary? No. Was it a free option? Absolutely, because it wasn't mm. costing me anything because it was offset. Mm. So I borrowed more. I left it in the offset, which means I wasn't paying any extra interest. Now, if you can't do that without, by the way, spending that money, don't do it because that's you know you're gonna, if you're going to dip into the offset to buy a car and buy a boat and remodel a house, then you've you've, you've hurt yourself twice. Which is why the banks um, probably offer offsets. If I'm being a cynical, cynical person here, like, you know, right. you could pay it off. Or yeah. why, why, why would you have an, why would a bank offer an offset rather than letting you pay extra on your loan because yeah. you might take the money back out again? That's exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Totally, totally. I hope that helps, Delphin. We, we can't be too specific, mate, and the, the question's reasonably broad, and, and it should be, and that's completely fine, but hopefully we've given you something to, to run with. Mate, we've run out of time, but we will come back next week, won't we? Time flies when you're having fun. God, it went quick. Doesn't it? Yeah. I know, yeah. and still to get through as many questions as we wanted to. Uh, a really interesting question, by the way, we might start with next week from Craig, who's got a lot of tech stocks, and he says... Uh, Fast forward three months and I've gone from rooster to feather duster. We can feel that pain. I shouldn't laugh. I, don't, so. I, don't, I, I, I laugh more with an uh, 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 oh, yeah, yeah. empathetic, empathetic, <laughs> totally. empathetic kind of ha. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, no, feel, no, I feel that. I feel that. Exactly, exactly. So we'll, we'll kick off that next week, Ram. But in the meantime, oh, actually, quickly one. Quick one, quick one. You got a question? 
Send it to us, info yes. at fool.com.au. Make sure you follow Andrew on Twitter. As I said, exclusive deal with Jack Dorsey at Twitter. He's <laughs> only on Twitter, so you only can get him at sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest on Twitter. Uh, if you want to grab me on Twitter or Insta, go to at TMF Scott P. The Motley Fool's on both at The Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, everyone's on Facebook. I'm facebook.com slash forward slash Scott Phillips Money. And you get The Motley Fool at facebook.com forward slash Motley Fool Australia. Just a quick one. Week. Jack, Dorsey's oh. no, Jack, Jack Dorsey's no longer at Twitter. He still owns most of so, so my So my deals, my deals off. Your deal's off. <laughs> so you're coming to Instagram. <laughs> 2022 uh, is the year of Instagram for Andrew Page and Strawman. We'll see. As I've said before, mate, the day you join TikTok is the day I join <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> You've seen me dance, haven't you? I have. <laughs> Until next week. Until more dancing happens. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.